As we turn to the message for this morning, titled Sanctification's Key, The Spirit-Controlled Life. We are in Romans 8. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to turn to Romans 8, even though the verses will be on the screen. I'd like you to turn to Romans 8 in case someone beside you has a difficulty seeing the screen. They can look right on your copy of God's Word. Romans 8, 1 to 17. Sanctification's key, the spirit-controlled life. To be free from sin. To be delivered from sin's mastery. To consistently be pure and holy. Surely, these are some of the greatest longings of every healthy, redeemed child of God. But the problem is, how can these great longings be realized? Romans 6, I hope you recall, chapter 6, called us to a very important progression. A progression from knowing to reckoning to presenting. Knowing, reckoning, presenting. Knowing, reckoning, and presenting. That was Romans 6. And that being said, if we will do a good job of knowing Christ, of reckoning ourselves to be crucified with Christ, the old sin nature, and then presenting the members of our body as tools in our tool chest for God, the Holy Spirit, to use for the glory of God, if we do a good job of that, will all be said and done? Will we constantly know freedom from sin? Will we constantly be delivered from sin's mastery? Will we be consistently pure and holy? Will we be... If we just take the half of the equation, knowing, reckoning, and presenting, no, that is not the whole picture. That's why God, in his word, has given us Romans chapter 8 that we begin this morning. If we do not understand the ministry of the indwelling Holy Spirit of God who resides permanently within the blood-bought child of God, we will not know victorious Christian living. And we instead will be injured like the guy who showed up at the Home Depot asking, do you have an undo-it-yourself project? His hand's all bandaged. We'll be like the one who gets grossly messed up in the restaurant when he allows his toddler to feed himself when the child's not ready to do that. We'll be like the fatigued and ready-to-quit logger who is trying to cut down the tree without the chainsaw running. We need the Spirit of God who lives within us as children of God to produce the victory of God in our day to day to day to day to day to day living. And that's what this chapter is about. Our longings, our longings to be free from sin, to be delivered from sin's mastery, to be consistently pure and holy can only be realized as we walk in the Holy Spirit, as we live controlled by the Spirit of God within us, as we live directed by the Spirit of God's mind and will and adherence to Scripture. We can only live consistent Christian lives as we welcome the Holy Spirit of God into the seat of our bicycles, that he would pedal our Christian lives, that he would steer our Christian lives rather than we ourselves doing those things. And I want to start this morning, church, incredible body of Christ, I want to start this morning in chapter 8 by showing you two blessings of your salvation. If you're saved, you all have these two blessings. The first blessing is we will never be condemned for our sins. 
We will never be condemned for our sins. That's a blessing. Verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The first spiritual blessing of these precious verses, if you're saved, is you will never be condemned for your sins. And this is an emphatic, no, you won't be condemned for your sins, because in the original Greek, the word order emphasized, and we could translate it this way. There is now, therefore, never condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so, even though you and I do struggle with sin, And even though you and I do from time to time find ourselves falling into sin, into the grip of sin again, we will never face the penalty of our sins. Jesus did. We will never bear the brunt of God's righteous wrath against sin because Jesus did. Something in verse 1 further. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who are in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? It means that the blessing of salvation is only found with identity, identification, union with Christ. And that happens at the point of conversion. The moment you transfer your trust to Jesus Christ alone for your salvation from sin, that is the moment that the Spirit of God baptizes you into Christ. You're in Christ permanently. And that's why the first blessing, there is not ever condemnation for the child of God who is in Christ. The second blessing, the second blessing in verse Two is that we can always be delivered from our sin. We can always be delivered from our sin. See it in verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Will you remember that in Romans 6 and 7, we saw that sin singular means the law of sin and death, the gravitational downward pull on you into sins, plural. Sin singular is the law, the principle, the working idea of the law of sin and death pulling you down into individual acts of sinning. So the law of sin and death is sin singular in this passage, and sins, plural, are the actual deeds of sinning. And the great blessing we're seeing in verse 2 is that we can always be delivered from our sin. We can always be released from that downward pull of law, sin, and death on us. Amen. There aren't victims to it. Flip Wilson had it wrong. The devil made me do it. Ah. So the second blessing is we can always be delivered from our sin. Look at verse 2 to see this again. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. You're disengaged from the principle. You don't have to be pulled down into acts of sinning. You don't have to be. I do hope that you recall that sin singular is the law of sin, that downward pulling principle of authority of sin to pull us into acts of sinning. I hope you remember that. And verse 2 is always assuring us that we can be delivered from that downward pull by the law of sin and death because 
since the power and the authority of the Holy Spirit are stronger than the power and the authority of the law of sin and death. Aren't you glad? The power of the Holy Spirit is greater than the power of the law of sin and death that wants to pull you in, suck you in to sins. You know, all of our vehicles, I assume, are of an age on the island that they have airbags. Maybe there are older vehicles that don't, but I would think the majority of the vehicles on this island have airbags. And in a head-on collision, a driver's head doesn't go through the windshield because the force of the airbag is greater than the force of the forward thrust in the head-on collision. The impact would throw the driver through the windshield. But the force in opposition of the airbag pushes back on the driver harder than the force would put him or her through the windshield. That's what we're talking about. The power of the Holy Spirit is the airbag. The power of the law of sin and death is the collision head-on impacts force. And the force that lives within you, if you are saved, is greater than the force of the law of sin and death that would gladly, constantly, continuously, creatively pull you down into sins. This marvelous deliverance from sin has come through two kinds of righteousness being given to believers in Jesus. Ready? Two kinds of righteousness you've received if you've received Jesus as Lord and Savior. First, there is positional righteousness. This comes to us through the Son's sacrifice on the cross. Because Jesus died on the cross, God can give you who believe in Jesus positional righteousness. But there's another kind of righteousness, practical righteousness. Practical righteousness comes to us through the Holy Spirit's enabling after our conversions. And so there are two deliverances from the law of sin and death because there's two kinds of righteousness that we know in Christ. First, positional righteousness through Jesus Christ's cross. Second, practical righteousness through the Holy Spirit's indwelling power and enablement. Now, verse 3 stresses our positional righteousness through Jesus Christ's sacrifice. Look at verse 3, please. What For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Verse 3 is stressing your positional righteousness through your Savior's sacrifice. You are positionally righteous. When God looks at little old you, God sees you as being righteous because of Jesus' sacrifice for you. God the Father sees little old you as a believer in Jesus, robed in Christ's righteousness. You couldn't be more acceptable than you already are because of Christ. That's positional Righteousness. But there's also practical righteousness. Verse 4. Verse 4 stresses our practical righteousness through the Holy Spirit's enabling. We can have practical righteousness, day-to-day righteousness, Monday-to-Saturday righteousness, righteousness when our kids are giving us a headache, righteousness when our husband is acting out, righteousness when our wife is uh, also acting out. We can know practical righteousness as believers through the Holy Spirit's enabling. Verse 4. 
in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. See, capital S, that's the Holy Spirit. But according to the Holy Spirit. It's amazing, the incredible body of Christ. It's truly amazing. But we are righteous if we're saved. We're a collection of righteous people. Amazing. Our position before God is a position of being righteous because Jesus died and paid for all of our sins, past, present, and future. Based on Jesus Christ's work for us, the God the Father acquitted us, although we were guilty, and the God the Father uh, declared us innocent, although we were not innocent. That's positional righteousness. And, now watch this, our practical living before God is righteous to the degree that we live controlled by the Holy Spirit. If I'm preaching this morning right now controlled by the Holy Spirit, and I believe and pray that I am, that's one thing. But two sentences later, if I start thinking about what you all think of me, then that is not practical righteousness. It's that fleeting for all of us. It's that fleeting. The next verse is in the passage, are verses 5 to 11. Follow in your Bibles. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. If I marked my Bible, I would underline verse 8. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. Verse 11. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who indwells you. Friends, in the Old Testament, believers in God were not permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit like we are in this age. In the Old Testament, believers in God were not permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Instead, the Holy Spirit visited them temporarily that they could do amazing exploits within the will of God, David and Goliath. Esther, Queen Esther, the beauty queen winner, going to the king of Persia, risking her life. The Holy Spirit visited Old Testament believers. He never permanently indwelled them. That's why David, after he sinned with Bathsheba in his psalm of confession, asked, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Because in that dispensation, in the Old Testament, that is in fact what could and would and should have happened. You don't have to pray if you're saved, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. You're permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit. What an advantage. What an advantage. And since the giving of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit permanently lives inside every true believer. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you do not have salvation. But if you have salvation, you do have the Holy Spirit. No exceptions. And he never leaves us. And now the next verses of our passage 
today present six things which are new, six things which are new for you, new for every believer in Jesus, six things which are new since the Spirit of God now permanently lives within you if you're saved, now permanently lives within any born-again Christian. Six things that are brand new. Ready? Here we go. Number one, because the Spirit of God permanently indwells you, you have a new identity. You have a new identity. It's the identity from being with Christ and his Holy Spirit instead of your old identity of being with Adam. We saw that in chapter 5. You have a new identity. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. Verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. New identity. In Christ Jesus. New identity. You know, ours is an age, it would seem, of perpetual identity crisis. The dilemma of an unclear sense of personal identity was illustrated by an incident years ago now in the life of the famous German philosopher Schleiermacher, who did much to shape the progress of so-called modern thought that leaves God out. The story is told that one day as an old man, he was sitting alone on a bench in a city park. A policeman, thinking he was a vagrant, came over and shook him and asked, Who are you? And Schallmacher replied sadly, I wish I knew. There is an identity crisis amongst those who don't know Jesus Christ and do not have the Spirit of God living within them permanently. There's a, but we who have the Spirit of God within us, we who are saved, we have a new identity, and it's in Christ. Second, since the Holy Spirit permanently indwells the believer, we have a new pursuit. We have a new pursuit. We have the pursuit of spiritual objectives now, and no longer just the pursuit of natural objectives. If the Holy Spirit of God lives in you permanently, you have a new pursuit to your life, and that pursuit is spiritual objective, and no longer just natural objective. Verse 5, see that with me? For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit, a new pursuit. In the Chinese Bible, the Bible that translates the uh, Greek of the New Testament into Chinese, the Chinese Bible here in this verse uses the word sympathies for the English word minds. The Chinese Bible accurately is translating to say that our sympathies are either with the flesh or with the Spirit of God. And the next verse explains that the sympathizing with the flesh means death, but the sympathizing with the Holy Spirit brings life. Let me read verse 5 that way. For those who are according to the flesh sympathize on things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. What do you pursue? Third, 
Since the Holy Spirit permanently indwells us believers, we have a new result. We have a new result. And it's the result of life and peace. Life and peace instead of the result of death and conflict with God. That's what verses 6 to 8 are teaching. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We no longer have to be in our flesh like we were before we were saved. Because in, when we were, before we were saved, the only thing that could result in everything we thought, did, and said was death, separation from God, and conflict with God and his will as found in his word. But once we come to saving faith in Christ, and Christ gives us peace with God, forgiveness of sins, new life, the Holy Spirit, to indwell us permanently, when that happens, we have a new result. We have life, true life. Jesus said, I've come to give you life and to give it more abundantly, John 10, 10. We have life and we have peace. Peace is not predicated on peaceful surrounding things. Peace is predicated and based on Jesus, the Prince of Peace, as your life. That's how you know peace. So there's more. Since the Holy Spirit permanently lives in the blood-bought child of God, there's also a new position, a new position of being controlled by the Holy Spirit. Being controlled by the Holy Spirit and no longer being controlled by the flesh. Verse 9, please. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. You can't say, I'm born again, but I don't have the Holy Spirit. Eh, wrong. If you are saved, if you've looked to Jesus Christ alone for your salvation at some point in your life, if you've trusted Christ and only Christ and not religion to make you right with God, to reserve a place in heaven for you, if that's your reality, child of God, then you have the Holy Spirit. And you have all of the Holy Spirit you will ever get. The question becomes, how much of you does the Holy Spirit have to control? Verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Oh, there's so much going on when the Holy Spirit of God comes to permanently indwell the child of God. There's so much. There's also a new prospect, a new prospect. I see it in verse 11, and it's this, the prospect of resurrection to life and no more the prospect of resurrection to judgment. Verse 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal body through his spirit who indwells you. Oh, there's a new prospect. When the spirit of God comes to live inside of you as a believer in Jesus, to live permanently inside of you, there's a wonderful new prospect. It's the prospect of resurrection to life versus the old prospect you had of resurrection to judgment. But just before we move off all of these great blessings of being 
Holy Spirit indwelt, namely, let's review the blessings, having a new identity, having a new pursuit, having a new result, having a new position, having a new potential, and having a new prospect before we move off all of that completely as we teach you today. It needs to be pointed out that all of this blessing is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit sealing you the Holy Spirit sealing you. Hold your places in Romans and go with me to Ephesians. A little further back in our New Testaments, Ephesians 1.13. It's the sealing of the Holy Spirit that guarantees the redeemed child of God all the blessings I've taught you so far in Romans chapter 8. Ephesians 1.13. In him... You also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, watch it, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. 14, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Do you remember when you got engaged, ladies? and your fiancé gave you a ring, and you proudly placed that ring on your ring finger of your left hand, and it told every guy that was interested in you that you're no longer available. It was a pledge. It was a sealing. It was a marking out for loving ownership. Spirit of God seals the child of God who trusts the Son of God for salvation, and that sealing guarantees all the blessings of Romans 8 that we've been studying this morning. Go, to me, go with me, please, to Ephesians 4 to see the same thing. Ephesians 4, verse 30. Ephesians 4, verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Do you know what it's like? Here's what it's like. When you were saved... Through trusting Jesus Christ alone, God the Father placed you into an envelope and he addressed on the envelope his own name and the city of heaven. So when I was saved, I was placed into this envelope that was addressed for God the Father in heaven and then sent by registered mail to heaven. But before God the Father mailed me in the envelope to himself in heaven, he had the Holy Spirit seal the envelope. No one can open the envelope of salvation that you are in except God the Father who gave you that salvation in his Son. You're secure. You're safe. You're eternally saved. Once saved, always saved. Grace that saves you is the same grace that keeps you safely saved. I remember when I was pastoring another church in America, I'd never seen this before, but a young woman came to me as I was her pastor, and she had applied to Phoenix Seminary, and she was uh, needing me to fill out a reference form for her. I gladly did that. And that, what the seminary told me to do was to uh, fill out the questions and answers for this young lady to do with the reference for the seminary, to seal it in an envelope, and to write my signature across the seam of the back flap of the envelope, right on the seam. 
Half my signature was above the seam and half my signature was below the seam. And of course, we know why they did that. Nobody can open that envelope and put my signature back together perfectly. So what was in that envelope would get to the seminary missions office without any tampering. That's your salvation. Satan can harass you, can't possess you. Satan can bother you, tempt you, can't take away your forgiveness in Christ. You're safe. That's not ever to use that to take liberties to sin, but you're safe. Praise God. Now we're moving our way through chapter 8. And let me quickly review what we've seen to date in the chapter. We've seen that two blessings. We've seen that we will never be condemned. We've seen that we will always be delivered. Second, how we've seen how God uh, has provided us deliverance from sin, two kinds of things of righteousness. He's given us positional righteousness via his son's sacrifice. He's given us practical righteousness via his Holy Spirit's enabling. And then we've seen six things that are marvelously new and better since the Holy Spirit of God comes to live inside of us once we're saved. A new identity, a new pursuit, a new result, a new position, a new potential, and a new prospect. And now we move on. There's more. Next, in verses 12 and 13, we're going to see the believer's proper response. Good teaching doctrine always requires proper living. We don't come to church and look into God's Word every Sunday to get smarter. We come up to church every Sunday to get into God's Word to become more like Jesus. And so we're moving to chapter 8, 12 through 13, and we're moving to what is the believer's proper response to this wonderful blessing that the Spirit of God permanently indwells him or her? What's to be our lifestyle? What's to be our response? How are we to live? 12. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Friends, the only smart response to God giving us his Holy Spirit to live permanently inside us is to live dependent upon him constantly and not to depend on our flesh. We have a Toyota car that was given to us by very kind uh, people in a former church we pastored. And when we moved to the Bahamas, we gave this Toyota car to our daughter, Joanna, who is a full-time student at the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. And of course, as a father, protective of my young daughter's well-being, one of the first things I bought for that Yaris when I turned it over to her was a GPS system. Because I don't want my pretty young daughter lost in the night in Chicago. So I gave her a GPS system so she could refer to the GPS system not to get lost and to get safely to where she was going. It would only be smart for Joanna to refer to the GPS system. She would be foolish if she had a GPS system in her Yaris and she never consulted it because she turned it off. We would be smart as Christians to refer to the ultimate divine GPS system we have in the Spirit of God and never to turn him off. I'm not interested. I'm going to handle this one myself. I'm going to date who I want to date, Holy Spirit. 
I'm going to cut the ethical corner that I'm going to cut in Holy Spirit. I'm going to tell my wife I no longer love her so I can be in, have infidelity. Leave me alone, Holy Spirit. I'm going to hold that grudge to the brother or sister in Christ who did me wrong. Don't tell me otherwise, Holy Spirit. The only smart thing for all of us to do, since God gave us the Holy Spirit of God to dwell in us permanently, is to live constantly with him speaking orders and directives into our lives. That's the only thing that's smart. Otherwise, we are foolish Christians. Since God has graciously given us his spirit to live full-time in us, the only proper response to that wonderful, wonderful gift is to choose to live dependently on the Holy Spirit and not to depend on our own smarts or strengths, moment to moment to moment to moment, right? You can't rise in the morning and say, I'm going to live controlled by the Holy Spirit. Thank you very much. I'm done. Moment to moment to moment to moment. The things you've planned for your day, the things you have not planned for your day, live in dependence upon the Holy Spirit of God. What we're describing here, what the Bible's describing here, is a lifestyle of dependence. A lifestyle of dependence. By the way, the most telling evidence that you are not walking in dependence with the Holy Spirit is you don't pray. Prayer is a declaration of dependence. Not praying is a declaration of independence. I don't need you, God. Get into a mini church and learn how to pray. We're talking about a a lifestyle of depending on God. It's like the person, I'm like this too, the person who gets up in the morning with one eye open and says, I got to get my coffee into me. And then the other eye open. (laughs) That person has a caffeine dependency. It's a lifestyle of needing caffeine. I have one cup a day, so I'm not too heavily addicted, I trust. And verses 12 and 13 are saying, live according to, live dependent on the Holy Spirit. It's the only reasonable response for you to have as God's child. And the Holy Spirit of God is living inside of you. You don't have to find him somewhere. He's inside of you if you're saved. And will you notice from verse 13 that there is a balance? There is a balance in verse 13, and it is the balance between our responsibility to say no to the downward pull of the law of sin and death on our lives, balanced off with the Holy Spirit's accomplishment of the task of granting us victory over sin. It's both and. It's a balance. Verse 13, see it? For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to, uh, leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. J. Vernon McGee has called verse 13 the red light on the freeway of the Holy Spirit. There's not supposed to be a red light on a freeway. There is not supposed to be flesh dominating a Christian on the freeway of walking in the Holy Spirit's control. Freeways aren't supposed to have red lights. That's what makes them freeways. But similarly, Holy Spirit indwelt Christians aren't supposed to live according to their flesh because living according to one's flesh, you cannot please God. One more thing from verse 13. Verse 13, one more time. For if 
you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The Daily Bread writer wrote, Nature is violent. Life and death are the law of the field, stream, and jungle. A lion stalks a gazelle. A heron stands motionless in the edge of a pond, its long, sharp beak poised, ready to kill. High overhead, red-tailed hawks hold their deadly talons close to the body, watching for movement in the grass below. Suddenly, a rabbit's pain becomes an eagle's gain. A leopard family exists at a zebra's expense. Each survives on another's demise. This sounds natural enough, but it's far more graphic than most of us care to watch. The principle that nothing lives unless something else dies extends beyond nature to our daily walk with God. Interests of the flesh must succumb to the interests of the Holy Spirit, or the interests of the Holy Spirit will succumb to the interests of the flesh. In the jungles and fields and streams of our own hearts, something must always die so that something else can live. The passage here is progressing. We're making headway. We've seen two blessings of salvation. We've seen how God has provided deliverance from sin. We've seen the consequences, the happy consequences of being Holy Spirit indwelt. We've seen the proper response to being Holy Spirit indwelt. And now, the Holy Spirit's leading of believers, verse 14 through verse 17. The Holy Spirit's leading of believers, 14 to 17. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Will you notice very quickly four things in verse 14? All true believers are led. You cannot be a true believer and said, God never leads me. All true believers are led. And one of the evidences that God is our adoptive father is that he cares for us enough to have his Holy Spirit lead us. When we were in Niagara Falls many years back, when our son was eight years old, it happened to be on a day when the town was packed out with tourists more than usual. And it was extremely loud walking by all the attractions. And I was concerned that I not get separated from JD by the crowd. And so I was barking out instructions to him, and I was insistent on him holding my hand or my wrist. This caring protection and guidance I only gave to my son. This caring guidance evidence that J.D. is my beloved son, my fatherly relationship with him. Verse 14, and all for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. If you belong to God through your Savior Jesus Christ, God the Holy Spirit is taking you by the wrist, as it were, and walking you through the midway of cacophony of sounds, competing for your will, your affection, your priority, your worship. Number two, not only are all true believers led, secondly, we are led continually in an ongoing way. For all 
who are, there it is, present tense. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. You are not only led by God's Holy Spirit, but you are continuously led by God's Holy Spirit. But there's more. Number three, for this, we must skip ahead to verses 28 and 29 of chapter 8, well-loved verses. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Not only are we led by the Spirit if we're saved, not only are we led continually by the Spirit in an ongoing way, but also we are led toward the good, verse 28. And we are led for, towards the good, namely conformity to Christ. The Spirit of God will always lead you, and he's leading you to be more like Jesus. If something you wonder, if it's God's leading, if it doesn't make you more like Jesus, it's not God the Holy Spirit's leading. Fourth, not only does the Spirit of God lead, not only does he lead continually, not only does he lead to the good, which is Christ-likeness, but fourth, the result of being led is no fear. No fear. No fear about our status in God's family, no fear about our present lives, and no fear about our future destinies. See it with me. No fear about our status in God's family. That's verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. No fear about our present lives. That's the first part of verse 17. And if children, heirs also with God and fellow heirs with Christ, and also no fears about our future destinies. That's the second part of verse 17. If if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. As the Holy Spirit who permanently indwells you leads you, he leads you continually. He leads you to Christ-likeness, and he leads you not to have to fear. Fear about whether you're in God's family, fear about your present life circumstances, or fear about your future destinies. It's so wonderful. It is so wonderful. When we are led by God's Holy Spirit, we live without fear. When we allow the Spirit of God to lead us, we are confident people. We are courageous people. This is a wealth of which the Christless population of Nassau knows nothing. The Daily Bread Writer again. I recall an old television series called The Millionaire. The weekly plot centered around an anonymous man of great wealth who surprised people by giving them a gift of a million dollars. Milton Petrie is the modern version of that man. According to the New York Times article, Mr. Petrie, once worth more than a billion dollars, reads the New York papers for stories of people life has kicked in the face, and then he reaches out for his checkbook. The wealthy benefactor often requires anonymity as a condition for his generosity, but sometimes he tells enough to make his unusual story interesting. For instance, the Times article ended with what he had said about his own chauffeur. This guy's in my will for a million dollars, and he doesn't even know it. Then the article concluded with the billionaire's word, surprise! We may feel a little envious of that chauffeur who probably now discovered he's in the will by reading the paper, but when we are born again, we come into the enormous spiritual wealth of Christ. All the spiritual wealth there is is found in Christ, and it's ours. 
It is ours. Don't be like the chauffeur who didn't know it. God isn't wanting to say to you who are in Christ, surprise, because he's given us his word to tell us our riches in Christ. What encouraging verses. <laughs> what encouraging verses. No fear about committing the unpardonable sin. No fear about losing salvation. No fear of facing God's wrath at the great white throne judgment. No fear of sins that we've forgotten and thus not confessed. No fear about having our names erased from the Lamb's book of life. No fear about the Lord unelecting us. No fear about the Lord unadopting us. No fear about the Lord disowning us. And the thing is that he puts the engagement band of all the blessings we have in our salvation in the person of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you if you're saved. Let him lead. Let him change you. Let him strengthen you. Let him love through you. Will you stand with me? This is a true story. She knew and loved the Lord. She studied God's word, and she yielded to God's spirit. She prayed and she worshiped and fellowshiped with God's people every week in her church. But these good practices didn't keep her from much disappointment and great pain. Her husband didn't know the Lord as his savior. He drank to the point of drunkenness as a habit. He was mean and he was verbally abusive. He broke his marriage vows and would often come home late without an explanation. His shirt collars had lipstick on them. He smelled like perfume. She knew, but she kept on respecting an unrespectable man. She loved a man who didn't love her back. She remained faithful to a husband who didn't reciprocate. Then one especially vile night, He came home late and drunk. She had kept his dinner warm in the oven, covered with foil. She placed his meal down, and he flew off of the handle, yelling, complaining, saying awful things about his wife and about her cooking. And without eating more than about a bite or two, he stood up, took his plate of food, and threw it up against the kitchen wall. He stormed away from the table to be alone. As she was left with her thoughts and her hurts and with a disgusting mess in her kitchen, she prayed. She wept. She slowly and silently cleaned up the food mess without saying one word. He went to bed to sleep off his stupor. The next morning, he was surprised that the kitchen was clean and that his wife was sitting calmly at the kitchen table waiting for him. Nothing was said about the ugliness of the previous night. The Holy Spirit must have been leading her. That Sunday, the ogre went to church without being asked. He wept through most of the service and especially through the pastor's sermon. When the Lord's invitation was given, he went forward to trust Jesus Christ alone for salvation, 
And then his wife wept. It wasn't long before the Holy Spirit totally made over the man in every way. Once saved, he said that the single most influencing factor in him repenting and coming to Christ was that ugly night and how his wife didn't fight back or leave him. Although he was drunk, he remembered that he had done what he did in order to force her or invite her to leave him. When she was so self-controlled and so meek, he knew that her Jesus was for real. Such is the power of being filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit. Such is the countercultural nature of being filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit. Will you be that powerful? Will you be that countercultural? Then you'll have to be letting the Spirit of God control you. I don't know what all of you face this week, and I don't know what I face this week, but I do know that we're all being watched. We are all being watched, and I also know that you and I are being remarkably controlled by the Holy Spirit if we are, that it will mean supernatural, inexplicable, striking love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control being produced in us. And last, I also know that when the fruit of the Spirit is hanging on the branches of our lives, the Lord can use that fruit of the Spirit to utterly convince vile doubters that Jesus is Lord. Sing with me. He is Lord. He is Lord. He is risen from the dead, and He is Lord. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord, we're standing because one stands before a king. And believer, the king of kings has given you his power to live your Christian life in victory. And that power is in the Holy Spirit who permanently lives inside of you. Again, he is Lord, he is Lord. He is risen from the dead and he is Lord. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord.